Welcome again to our worship. What a wonderful thing to be celebrating the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ with the people of God uh, to stoke our fires together, to build a bonfire and hope that it continues to warm us as I dodge this wasp that is going around me right now. <clears throat> I'm just sharing my heart, you know, that's all. That's all. Today we begin our Advent series and we're going to take it from the book of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament. You can find that on page 807 if you want to use the Bible that's in the pew, that blue book. Very first chapter of the whole New Testament. And no, we're not going to skip the genealogy. Uh, we're going to read the genealogy and hope that we don't check out. The word genealogy uh, can also be translated generation, or it's also used in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the Greek word genesis, so it can mean generation, beginning, origin, or birth. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, or Messiah, Meshiach in the Hebrew. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, the Messiah, 14 generations. Thus, 
the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and our growth in grace. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your precious word, every scrap of it. Lord, it is that which brings us salvation because it brings us to Christ and it brings Christ to us. Oh, Lord, show us Christ this morning. May we see his glory. May we trust, entrust ourselves to him afresh and give ourselves in joy to, to making na- known his name, especially at this celebration of Advent. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. In the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, after a long string of bank and train robberies, E.L. Harriman head of the Pacific uh, Railroad, hires a super posse to track down and kill Butch and Sundance, played by Paul Newman and Robert Redford. No matter what Butch and Sundance do, they simply cannot shake the posse. The posse even follows them with torches at night. Here are some of the exchanges as they're being chased. Butch, don't they get tired? Don't they get hungry? Sundance, they gotta be. Butch, why don't they slow up? They could even go faster. At least that'd be a change. They don't even break formation. Do something. Butch again, I couldn't do that. Could you do that? Why can they do it? Who are these guys? Again and again, that's the question. Who are these guys? So they try to figure it out. Butch, who's the best lawman? Sundance, the best how? You mean toughest or easiest to bribe? It'd be a good lawman from a robber's standpoint. Butch, toughest. Sundance, Joe LaForce. Butch, gotta be. Sundance, LaForce never leaves Wyoming, never. You know that. Butch, he always wears a white skimmer. That's how you tell it's Joe LaForce, because he always wears a white straw hat. Look at that guy out front. He has a white straw hat. Another time, Sundance. Remember a few years ago when we were at a saloon in Denver? We got to talking to some gambler that night, and he told us about an Indian, a full-blooded Indian, except he called himself by an English name, Sir, Sir, somebody, Butch, Lord Baltimore. Yeah, Lord Baltimore. And he could track anybody over anything, day or night. Butch, so? The guy on the ground, I think it's him. But no, Baltimore works out of Oklahoma. He's strictly an Oklahoma man. I don't know where we are, but he sure is in Oklahoma. No, it couldn't be him. Couldn't be him. Sundance, I guess. That was a constant question. Who are these guys? How are they able to do what they can do? And that is the question in Matthew. When Jesus calmed the sea in Matthew 8, they marveled and said, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? When he forgave the woman who washed his feet with her tears in Luke 7, those at table began to say, Who is this who even forgives sins? And in Matthew 21, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And 
The high priest, when Jesus had been arrested, said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us who you are. Even Jesus posed the question himself. One day in Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? He knew that was the critical question. Who is Jesus? How is he able to do what he can do? Everyone is asking this in Matthew's gospel. And the answer to that question is, is at the center of world history. It unveils the whole future and culmination of world history. And the answer to that question is the eternal crossroads for every human being on earth. Who is Jesus? It's the central question of Matthew's gospel. And it's the central question Matthew is going to answer in his gospel. And that's why he begins with the genealogy, right? Which I'm sure you uh, had you saying to yourself, you had me at Aminadab is the father of Nashon, right? You're just like all in at that point. I mean, wasn't it like a good movie you just wish would never end, Right? Maybe Darwin will find other longer genealogies in the Bible and read them back to back for two hours. Let's go for it, right? That's what you were thinking, I know. When I was 10 to 12 years old, I probably rededicated myself three or four times at East Gadsden United Methodist Church. And every time I determined that I was going to go home and read, read the Bible, I read it until chapter 5 when I read, here are the generations of Adam, and there was a genealogy. I never got past the genealogy in chapter 5. So I know, I know about genealogies. They're like yellow lights. Go fast now, right? That's what it means. Or maybe a detour sign, avoid this. The bridge of interest and importance is out. So just go around it. Now, in Mississippi, you'll have conversations like this. Uh, did, you, did you hear that David Sloan is getting married? Uh, he, he met this girl in his last year at State uh, from Clarksdale, and they're going to get married right, out of, uh, right after they graduate. Yeah, what's her name? Uh, Mary Barker. Wait a minute. Are those the Barkers that have that little bistro right outside of Clarksdale? Yep, that's them. And uh, also... Uh, Mary's mom is a Ford from Grenada. He's like, wait, is that Bob Ford? Yep, that's Bob Ford. Bob Ford. My grandfather, Albert, taught him how to hunt because his daddy had gotten killed in that logging accident. What a small world. That's the way we do it in Mississippi, okay? And your name tells us who you are. It tells us who your people are. It tells us where you come from. It places you in a picture that we have of the world, right? 
And so Matthew's not trying to bore us. And whatever you or I may think about it, he certainly doesn't think this is boring. He is telling us who Jesus is. And I might add, it's infinitely more important than who Mary Barker from Clarksdale is. No disrespect to the Delta for any of you that may live there. Uh, He's connecting him to people that we know, you see, people that we've heard about, especially because he's writing to Jews at the time. He's placing Jesus in a world that the, the Jews know about, right? And this is underscored by this use of this phrase, the generations of Jesus Christ, because it was used regularly in Genesis and Chronicles, uh, and it would introduce, say, the generations of Adam, and then you'd start describing those that, were, that came from Adam, or the generations of, of Noah, and you describe those that came from Noah, or the generations of those from Esau. But now it's interesting because the generations of Jesus, but it goes this way to Abraham. And brings you forward to Jesus, unlike these others. So he's telling us who Jesus' people are, right? He's telling us where he came from, who he is. And actually, this genealogy outlines the very history of God's salvation. Because God promised Abraham that a descendant would bring blessing to the whole earth, one of his descendants. In your offspring, he says in Genesis 18, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In fact, these are the actual verbs. Uh, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah. So to name Abraham's offspring is to trace the hope of the promise. The genealogy is hope spelled out name after name after name after name. Hope, hope, hope. You look up hope in the Hebrew Bible and it has the genealogy of Matthew, right? No, this is the meaning of hope that he's setting for, uh, for before us. One scholar has described the genealogy as a leaning in, okay? goes up, down, in, like an in. It leads us upward, first of all, to David, where the promise basically ju- jumps track onto the kingship train line, right? This now becomes a list of royalty after David. So one of the son, S-O-N, son kings of David will bring blessings to the earth. But at David, it takes a nosedive and ends at the Babylonian exile. But then from there, it goes up again and ends at Messiah, the son of David. So the points of the end are David and the son of David. That's the emphasis. And fact, it's interesting the, 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 some scholars call this last section after the deportation of Babylon the flame of hope carried beyond the collapse of, of the exile. 
Because you'll notice that though the Jews were restored and had been restored from the Babylonian exile for 500 years, he doesn't mention it. It's just the exile. The exile is, governs this whole last section. It's the controlling word. And it's probably because Matthew sees that Israel's exile has continued Not only the political exile because they've been under Roman rule, but the spiritual exile that they have turned away from Yahweh, that they are alienated from Yahweh. So the Babylonian exile stands for the total spiritual exile of Israel. And now, finally, the Messiah has come. So he purposely fixes this genealogy as he puts it here, to have 14 generations. Now, that's artificial, but it's the way you did genealogies. You could arrange them any way, and one great-great-great-grandfather could be said to have fathered the next one. But he purposely arranges it in uh, 14s. It's a picture of completeness because those are three sets of double sevens, and seven is the uh, number of completeness. So it's the completion, Abraham to the son of David. This is how God has worked out his purpose for his people. The preparation is set. The stage is set for this man. Who is he? Who is Jesus? Matthew sees Jesus as the goal of all Jewish history. He's finally the fulfillment of the hope that began with Abraham. That's who this Jesus is. He is the offspring of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's Jesus, the Messiah. So, moving on then from the genealogy as a whole, let's explore further how he sets forth Christ in the very names he uses. And we'll first take these together, Christ, the son of David, and then we'll look at just the word Jesus. Christ, the son of David. It's hard for us to picture what it meant for Matthew and his readers to use the word Meshiach or Messiah because it was especially attached to David Jesus, Messiah, son of David, is the long-awaited deliverer in whom the whole history of Israel has reached its great climax. All of these births were simply to bring this one person into the world. That's the whole point of this list of people, to bring this person into the world. And the most obvious An important break in the pattern occurs in verse 16. Did you catch it? Instead of Joseph fathered Christ, it says Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, guarding even there the special nature of the birth of this child, that it is from a virgin birth, a little hint at The fact that this is God come into the flesh, which he states explicitly in later in the chapter, uh, he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so he is underscoring the divine nature of this Messiah. 
This is the biggest surprise of this genealogy. Verse 16 just jumps out at us and it begs the question again, who is this? What do you mean by this? Who is this Jesus? (coughs) Excuse me. See, I'm using this mic instead of this one so I didn't knock your head off uh, when I I coughed. So, Messiah or Christ is pointing to what they would understand as this conquering Messiah who would destroy the enemies of Israel and establish God's kingdom with its capital in Jerusalem. And son of David is that messianic role. It's, it's, a, it's a shorthand, or if you want to say longhand, for Messiah himself. And this Messiah was to be anointed as never before with God's spirit and strength to deliver his people. He is royalty. Son of David really organizes the whole of the genealogy because it leads to David and then it leads to the son of David. And just listen to these promises to David. First to to David himself in 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up your offspring. So see, it's changed from just being Abraham's offspring, your offspring. Now it's David's offspring. So it's specified as a kingly line now. He shall come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jeremiah 23 says, The days are coming when I will raise for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Ezekiel 34, I'll set over them one shepherd, my servant David. You see how he calls him? As though David himself is being resurrected. Well, he's not. But he's naming him for David because he belongs to David. He's bringing David to his full expression as a perfect, powerful king over the whole earth. And Luke 1, in the words about John the Baptist, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. This, This is foreign to us. We don't understand the big importance of the son of David, but this meant everything, not only to the people of Israel, but to God himself, all right, that this was the son of David. And Matthew makes the most of this. Uh, this phrase, this son of David, is used only three times in Luke or, and three times in Mark, but nine times in Matthew. And here's the thing that's so important about it. It's used most often in his dealing of mercy with people. In Matthew 9, two blind men follow him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew 12, when he healed a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, and then he was able to speak and see, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? In Matthew 15, when the Canaanite woman came to him, she cried out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And then again in Matthew 22, blind men cry out on the roadside when they hear he's passing, Have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd tried to shut him up and they just got louder. Have mercy on us, son of David. You see, this 
this phrase, son of David, it reminds me of what we just sang. His kingly crown is holiness. His scepter is pity in distress. That's his kingly scepter. Pity in distress. That's the kind of king this is. That's who son of David is. He's not in the first place the king, the Messiah. They thought to release them from political oppression, but to release people from physical and spiritual oppression. That's what he came to do. It's a title of healing strength, kingly compassion, almighty kindness and mercy. He's anointed with the spirit. That's what Mashiach, Messiah means, anointed. He's anointed with the spirit to be mighty indeed. And in this in these books, it's primarily mighty in mercy. Mighty in mercy. And this title is for you. It tells you who he is and what he can do for you. These healings are certainly a preview of the final healing of the resurrection and new creation when all things will become new. These are little tokens and promises of the cosmic things that are on the way. But they also are parables of what he can and will do for us spiritually. He will heal you spiritually. Why? He's the son of David, right? He will heal you of addictions, whatever kind. He will heal you of sinful habits because he's the son of David. He will heal you of particular weaknesses and failings. He will heal you of your guilt and take away your punishment, bearing it away from you and onto himself because he's the son of David. He has already accomplished that on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, as Peter says. You can be healed of your alienation from God, your rejection of God, your distaste for God. You can be healed of that. You can be healed of a hard heart against God, a disdain for God. You can be healed of prayerlessness, your lack of compassion for others, your disengagement in worship. You can be healed because he's the son of David. Oh, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Cry out to him. Use that title. Be with the blind men. Have mercy on me. Son of David, in my guilt and my sin. And pile on top of Messiah, anointed king, son of David, this name that in Hebrew is Joshua, in Greek is Jesus, in English is Jesus. Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. His name is the Lord saves. His name defines who he is and what he came to do, what he will do for you if you will trust him. He rescues you. Salvation is, 
every other part of our life as Christians is under this great umbrella of salvation. Everything is about salvation. In Ephesians 2, it says, by grace you have been saved. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, this gospel by which you are being saved. And then in Romans 5, he says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. You have been saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. And so all of your personal effort and strain and discipline and sacrifice and refusal of sin and practice a purposeful development, these are a part of his salvation. He's working in you that which is pleasing in your sight. In other words, he's saving you, right? He's working in you to will and to do for his good pleasures, Paul says in Philippians 2. In other words, he's saving you. He's working in us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's another aspect of salvation and rescue. He says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's another aspect of his salvation. There's really nothing that he does for us that is not a part of his being Jesus. Savior. And if you don't know him as Savior and depend upon him constantly to keep rescuing you, you really rejected him because that's who he is. If you don't feel that helpless, you don't need that kind of salvation and rescue, then walk away. That's who he is. He's a Savior. Always rescuing us. And so it's always proper for us to pray, as some of us and I need to pray. Rescue me from my insensitivity and harshness toward my wife. Rescue me from sarcasm, my bitter tongue, my criticism instead of encouragement, my unwillingness to share my heart and to share myself. Oh, son of David. Jesus, have mercy on me. That should mark your life. That should be bread and butter every day. That's who we are. That's who he is. And when you look at who's included in the genealogy, it gets really encouraging. The sinful kings of Israel are in this genealogy. Ahab, who offered false fire to idols. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar deceived and slept with her father-in-law. Bathsheba was an adulterer. And they're all included. The inclusion of sinners is embedded in the genealogy. Christ, as he did in life, associates himself with sinners. This is about grace. He welcomes and forgives and renews sinners. It doesn't matter who you are of what you've done. Come receive the mercy and kindness of Messiah Christ Jesus. And Rahab and Ruth Ruth were Gentiles. Possibly all four of them were, but for sure they were. 
They were former idolaters who found refuge under the shelter of the true God, Yahweh. This is part of his message. It's for all peoples. These women are indicators of the far reach of the gospel. It leaves no one out of its invitation. The coming of the Gentiles is foreshadowed here. And then when the uh, Magi come who are Gentiles, they represent what will be the coming of all the Gentiles throughout the earth. And it ends in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, all the Gentiles everywhere. And of course, Jesus means salvation in the total and final sense. From guilt and judgment, from corruption, from shattered lives, from shattered relationships, from disease and death, and from a stained and broken environment, the new Joshua brings us to the new creation. Canaan was a token of the whole earth. The Old Testament, they just inherited a tiny piece of real estate and held it tentatively. Now the meek shall inherit the earth forever. He indeed is Joshua. He is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Matthew sets forth his answer. The anointed Savior and King for the whole earth. But Jesus asks you, and he asks me, who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? It's an eternal crossroads for you and me, right? Who do you say he is? And will you put your trust in him alone for your salvation and well-being? Will you put yourself in his hands to take your sin away and bring you into the favor of God? Will you entrust yourself to him to be a part of his mission to disciple the nations? And will you embrace him as the hope of the renewal of the whole earth? I love how we expressed it. Till you snatch us from the thorns. It's the thorns of the curse. Snatch us from the thorns till you wipe away the tears from every eye till we see our home descending from the sky. Who is Jesus? Will you trust him? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you and honor you that you've given yourself so freely to us in the person of Jesus Christ that we see this promise begun with Abraham, rolled out generation after generation building and enlarging and becoming something that no one could have imagined when God himself takes flesh. Indeed, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the anointed one. He is the son of David. He is the savior. He is king. Oh, Lord, enable us to rejoice in you in Advent and throughout the whole of our lives. For you've come for us. You've come to save us. Oh, we thank you. Give ourselves up to you. Amen.